Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an episode-by-episode discussion of a beloved animated series. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese cartoons we love so much. I am your co-host, Noah Carden, and joining me as always is... Aaron J. Shelton. And this week, we are covering Session 18 of Cowboy Bebop, Speak Like a Child. The synopsis for this episode is thus... A mysterious package comes for Faye with a beta cassette in it. While Faye runs away from it, thinking it's from a debt collector, Jet and Spike undertake an arduous search for a beta player to view it. In the end, they discover that it's a clue to Faye's past. Good job, Cowboy Bebop Wiki. That was almost word for word from them. Honestly, the best synopsis they've ever done. (laughs) Uh, This episode was... Directed by Yoshiyuki Takei and written by Akihiko Inari. Um, and the title comes from the Herbie Hancock song of the same name. So we don't normally talk too much about any any jazz musicians that are referenced in the show. Uh, just because that, I think for us, it's made kind of a blind spot. But here's, but if you're of a certain age, you've probably heard Herbie Hancock without realizing it. Um uh, Herbie Hancock is 80 years old. He's still kicking. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a part of the Miles Davis Quintet. And his most well-known track is probably Cantaloupe Island. Uh, but you might not have heard it in its original form because it was heavily, heavily sampled uh, in the track Cantaloupe. Not Cantaloupe, Cantaloupe, parentheses, Flip Fantasia by the jazz rap group US3. In 1993, I might drop in just a little bit. Please don't take it down, Spotify. But do you remember? No, do you remember that song that went "Bitty Bitty Bop, Bitty Bitty Bop"? Hold on, I'm gonna. Bitty, I'm bitty going bop. to have to go look at, like, listen to this myself. Yes, for go, just we'll a be second. back. Everyone, listen to it real quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, my. Maybe maybe a wee bit before your time. Just a little bit. I've definitely heard this song before, but it is... So yeah, I thought you were going to talk about Rocket, which is not exactly what you would think of when you probably think of Herbie Cancock. As it is very much of like the 1980s hip-hop style. I think it's like almost entirely a instrumental piece, but there's a lot of like synth and drum machines and a very heavy like scratch element to the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and, the, that, <laughs> and the video is fucking crazy. It's a bunch of robots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I complete. Oh, I completely forgot about that. I don't know why I didn't. That didn't pop up. I just. I think just the bitty. The bitty bitty bop mm-hmm. <laughs> stuck with me so hard as a youngster. Um, and I think Cantaloupe Island is also used in a bunch of like shampoo commercials. He mm. he's a famous musician, guys. Is what oh, we're yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> like two degrees of separation from anime. Yeah, exactly. On my second viewing, I, I think this might be one of my new top episodes. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the episode, it's revealed that the beta videotape 
is a recording that a young Faye in her teens uh, recorded and planned to send to herself in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then (laughs) life happened and explosion and gate explosions happen. And so Mm -hmm. it finally got to her. And so I think this episode reveals so much more about Faye, not just the, you know, the surface level of up here. It's how she was as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole episode and Faye's very subtle B plot shows way more character growth than I think any other character in the show. But it does get sidelined by just sort of the, I don't want to say goofiness, uh, I guess absurdity of going to a different planet (laughs) to look Uh for a tape player. Yeah, like it is the main adventure of the episode is sort of, it has a whimsical quality to it. Um, And it, especially, especially by 2020 standards, it is very extreme. The, the depths that they go to, to get that Betamax player. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's just, I think like exactly like you said, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting sort of contrast especially with like the very end of the episode when we finally get to see what's on it and, and see young Faye and this message that she left to herself. And for me, this has been a favorite episode for a while. Um, so from when I first watched the series back when it first premiered on uh, adult swim to like the last couple times I've watched it, I've gained an appreciation for it. And now watching it again for the show, that appreciation has only deepened. And it's one of those things that I think as you get older, this episode probably affects you a little bit more each time because it is effectively about a person, a person in the past leaving a message for their future self. And that can be that can be super, a super strong, like emotional, like residence. Like, what would you say to your past self or what would your past self say to you in the future is, is a very sort of interesting question. And I think that can have a lot of, you know, a lot of emotional gravitas, especially when the character has amnesia and can't remember anything about it. So they're seeing themselves. They can recognize themselves as this younger person, leaving themselves a message, but they have no memory of ever doing it. And that's, it's such a, a, a gut punch. And it just really, it really has the episode leave an effect, I think. Yeah, the end is almost entirely the tape Mm -hmm. with just like the last two minutes is just tape with uh, some shots of Faze reacting and you get her voiceover Mm -hmm. that lets and that's how you know that she doesn't remember any of this. And that is aside from just visually and just the choices made there being heartbreaking. It's everyone realizing that we really didn't learn anything about Faye from this. Yeah. Yeah. It's not some big reveal. Like you're an heiress and your money's waiting for you. Yeah. Um, it's just, yep. You have a pat. You had a past. Still mm-hmm. can't remember it, bud. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Cowboy bebop. Bebop. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do like, and I don't know if you really got this if you watched the the Japanese language version of the show, just because you don't you don't know Japanese like a hundred percent. 
But when in the dub, when Young Fei is talking about like, I'm sure you're in all sorts of trouble, it immediately cuts to Spike. And as she continues to talk and talks about like, uh, I'm sure you don't mean to to be such a pain to other people. It cuts over to Jet, and then eventually, like once she kind of finishes that, comes back to footage of the tape. And I think they really timed that out well so that hey the the stuff that Faye does like her past self knew that she would obviously be some sort of you know this rambunctious scamp to somebody in the future and like she knows herself well enough back then that like yeah no like of course I'm gonna cause some trouble for some people and stuff like that but I don't really mean to and you kind of see the 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 people that have come to mean something in her life uh when it makes those those kind of quick cuts there um i think in mine i did get the line about her causing trouble Mm -hmm. um i don't know if you got a line i don't know if they cut to anyone in the show but i don't know if you got the line about like herself asking is there someone special by your side yeah, they do leave that line in there. It happens when she's kind of like panning around the room. You see like her like little piano chair or something like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. that line is is totally in there. All right. Um, there's, but back what, to what you were saying about how her younger self knew sort of the trajectory to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, I'm no psychologist, nor am I a psychiatrist. But when dealing with trauma, whether that's, you know, physical uh, emotional. Um, it could be big. It could be small. We as humans, we will create coping mechanisms mm-hmm. uh, that will protect us uh, from those things. And then if we let them get out of hand, they become these habits to where even if something is not life or death, if it's even a small amount of anxiety, mm-hmm. those same coping mechanisms it's like, this is how you deal. Oh, this is, here's something small. Oh, no, it's stress. And the brain's like, well, this is stress. Here's my wide berth of like what stress is and how to react to it. Oh, I need to do my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So, to, so to have, one, to have little Faye already kind of know, like, hey, you're going to cause some trouble. Yeah. Um, but it also has to be incredibly frustrating on top of the, uh, with the amnesia on top of like literally, I think everyone asks themselves, like, why do I do the things I do? And through proper help, you can discover that. Um, but with amnesia, it's like, who knows? Yeah, and yeah exactly. Even, and the video is still like, nah, man, who knows? Yeah. Like, I think we know a little bit about Faye from when she was first waking up in in My Funny Valentine, the episode. Uh, you know, we see some of the stuff that she went through when she first you know, was defrosted in, in the 2060s before the, the start of the series. And we see some of the stuff that she goes through then. And it kind of makes sense that, yeah, like her her character trajectory in that, you know, she knows she's a little bit of a scamp when she's younger. And then this horrible accident happens and she's put on ice for however many years. And then when she gets out, she's effectively like taken advantage of by this the swindler and his like crew and you know the her her only sort of course of action is to fall back on like 
a bunch of vices and things like that and kind of become this other person that because she has amnesia, she doesn't really know if that's who she really is or not. That's just sort of a persona that she has become. And like you said, like she uses the start of the episode. We see her at a horse racing track and throughout the episode, we see her at like horse and dog tracks just like gambling the entire episode for the most part. So she has very much kind of fallen into like, you know, gambling and kind of trying to trick the rest of the bebop crew out of things at times and, and kind of being out there for herself that has kind of become who she is, but whether or not that is a hundred percent, if that is just kind of like what she naturally does, or if that's just sort of the persona that she has grown since becoming, since waking up is, is kind of, up in the air a little bit, I think. Well, that's just it, right? There's the you, the persona that Faye mm-hmm. has created that I think even she herself doesn't know mm-hmm. what that ma- well, you know, what that mask actually is and who is again, who is the real Faye. And I think more than any other episode we see it drop mm-hmm. here. Um I mean at the beginning, she, she again, defense mechanism, oh, that thing's for me. This is stress. Uh, run away. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. When she finds out that the crew went to Earth and she doesn't know why, like, oh, it's a very sad shot. She she hangs up and then just hangs on this wide of her and some sort of, you know, outdoor eating space alone. Yeah. Not saying anything. Yeah. Um, very much so. Yeah. And then, but that's just, but that's also like, well, she's changing, you know. Even a few months earlier, she would have been like, yeah, whatever. I'm, I was going to leave him anyway, so who cares? Yeah. I mean, she she even talks about like her famous disappearing act when she first shows up back at the Bebop and Jet's like, where's my money for your package? God damn it. And she, she just immediately runs and then she's almost immediately calling them back saying like, hey, what are they up to? What are they doing? Keeping an eye on them when like the first time they met and they she escaped she like went to a different planet and then happened to run into them mm-hmm. so yeah we've definitely seen how she's she's grown attached to the crew honestly everyone in this episode is putting in their character work it's like mm-hmm. you see jet's tenacity yes he will not give this up and like <laughs> definitely uh, like to his detriment to everyone's yes. detriment but yeah it's it's got to be more than a sense of duty. And like, as I'm saying all this, I'm, I'm realizing like, is this the episode where like the crew became like a crew? Huh? If that makes any sense. Like it wasn't just here are some random people together, but like, no, here are people who, you I, know, actually look out for each other. So I think, I think this about this part of the series, this sort of, back third i think this is kind of yeah this is basically where the crew is sort of calcifying into a unit for the most part like because i'm thinking about this episode and it's it's mostly spike and jet on their little adventure to find a betamax player to finally see what's on this tape while Faye wrestles with some internal strife and then like the next couple episodes like Wild horses. I'm not. I don't I remember. Don't a whole remember. Lot. 
I, I'm in I, the same boat. I'm like, what is this episode about? I know it's a. I know there is stuff that happens with Spike is on his own with the the guy that repairs his spaceship, but I don't remember what Jet and Faye are supposed to be doing. But I do remember that like Perot LeFou, the episode after the next episode, it's you know it's Spike dealing with this crazy assassin, but Faye is also there a lot of the time, kind of like backing him up. Um, so they kind of get partnered together. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, like these next six ish episodes is a lot of paired up, like different members of the, the bebop getting paired up for whatever the episode's adventure is. So, yeah, so I, I like, yeah, I've, I've kind of already said it, but yes, I think this <laughs> back, back part of the, the show is all about how they have grown together and how they work together. Up until the the finale, and I definitely think this this is probably I think between this and Mushroom Samba, we kind of this is definitely sort of like the turning point for that part of the show. Because a lot of the episodes beforehand have been very okay. We're going to follow this this character, and somehow they're able to flip that on its head with this episode, where it's it's about Faye, but we barely see her in mm-hmm. this episode. And so it, in a weird sense, it becomes an episode about everyone. It's, uh, it's, it's very good mm-hmm. <laughs> amongst the series. Yes. I like, I absolutely love this episode. I think like outside of like the really big fun episodes, like Mushroom Samba and Cowboy Funk and a couple of other, this is probably like my top episode, maybe, I think. I think oh, dang. Like, I, I just really, really like this episode. I love the the weird goofy like let's go urban exploring spelunking in old tokyo to find a busted ass vhs player that's the wrong <laughs> machine to play this betamax tape and then at the very end like like i keep coming back to it but it's this emotional gut punch of Faye seeing herself when she was like a teenager and having this this sort of i don't remember who i am sort of moment and just how just how like striking that is like listening to young Faye give herself a pep talk like will will it will cause me to like tear up every time like I watched this episode twice for this episode and both times I was like oh man here it comes I can't deal I can't <laughs> deal with it man <laughs> having having a character who was frozen Mm-hmm. Became unfrozen, lost their memory. Is trying to navigate the future. That's like that could be the show, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. And, like, yeah. And, and it's just I, again, I think it's to the credit of Cowboy Bebop, where it's like, no, that's like a part of it, and we'll talk about it here and there. But there's also mm-hmm. other. There's so many things they can explore with it with the different characters. Because we basically get phase like origin backstory, whatever you want to call it. In like three episodes, starting with like My Funny Valentine, where it's revealed that, you know, she was frozen and unfrozen uh, after the the gate accident. And then we get this episode where we get like this little glimpse into her past. And then like effectively the penultimate episode, Hard Luck Woman, we get even more info about Faye and her her life on earth before the the gate accident and stuff like that and like but that's all in like this last like i said this last like third of episodes 
and we've spent all this time with this character up until now, and it's just like, oh yeah, we'll do like three episodes, and we'll tie it in with some other stuff, and you'll get to learn about what Faye is all about, and her whole backstory, and it's going to be an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, man, it's... If we could reference it to uh, tabletop RPGs. I think um, we both know a lot about. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, and probably a lot of listeners. If, yes, um, fair. I don't like doing backstories for characters. Okay. Um, one, lazy. Two, I'm like, nah, I'll figure it out as we go. And like, I think, I'm sure we've like, when we were younger, uh, played in games where it's like, Hey, here's this character, and here's their whole deal. I'm like, I know that's bad. Yeah, don't just... like I've had characters where like I kind of know who they are, but what their whole deal is, I kind of figure out once once I get a little bit more comfortable playing that character, especially if it's like in a long running campaign. Like I will start thinking about their their deep lore air quotes once I've gotten used to actually playing that character. So, so yeah, like it's kind of come up with your character now and then work on develop the the history organically is is definitely the way to go, I think. And, and the sh- and what the show does, I think, is like you have to like the character, and then once you like the character, then you will care mm-hmm. uh, about their past. Yeah, it can't like, be a whole like book of appendices and and backstory and and history. Before you even get to the character, you got to get to them first. Well, doing my funny Valentine, like the first time we met her, mm-hmm. instead of Honky Tonk Woman, would have been disastrous. Oh, yeah, totally. It's like, okay, why did, like, we've had two episodes of Spike and Jet. Why do we get, why do we got to care about this person? Like, mm-hmm. You got to, you got to like them first. You got to care and then you'll care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, kiddos, gather around the fire. <laughs> Everyone under, I guess, 25? Yeah. Because 30, you know. Yeah, I think 30, your tangent. Yeah, anyway, I don't want to be yes. ageist. But you kids, listen up. So, back in the day, there used to be this thing called a video cassette. <laughs> uh, which is basically, it's, it's magnetic tape that they record audio and video on. And there was two formats in the, the late 70s and early 80s that were battling it out for supremacy. And that was VHS, which is Video Home System, and Betamax, which is, that's it, it means Betamax. Um, <laughs> and rail means rail. <laughs> yes. So there are two different formats. They're pretty similar effectively in like how they worked and things like that, but... The overall, like, quality and, like, the amount of stuff that you could record and things like that were, were, they varied between the two formats. Betamax was a format developed by Sony uh, in 1975. Yeah, that's when it was released. And VHS was developed by the Victor Company of Japan, or as better known, JVC, uh, in the early 70s, uh, 1976, I believe. So both formats were developed in Japan. Yes, that is correct. And yeah, so basically Betamax 
as I understand it, was higher quality recording, but could only record about an hour or so, um, depending on the recording speed. So you would have shorter tapes, but they would be a much quiet, much higher visual fidelity, while VHS could record for a lot longer. I want to say they could do like up to six hours, but the video quality would be a bit lower. Um, so those two things, these the, these two formats went at it for a while, um, with eventually VHS winning out in the end. The big thing that seems to have been the, the reason that VHS went out, despite what people would say, is pornography. A lot of people actually attribute it to just having the longer recording time so that people could record things for longer, and you could also have longer movies and things like that on VHS than beta. Uh, I want yeah. to say when I was really young, we had a beta player, but I think I think that went pretty quickly. <laughs> was there ever a time that you had to rent a VCR? Uh, let me see. I don't believe so. I think we were, my family was in the position that we never had to rent a VHS player. Um, I could go on a side tangent real quick. Please um, do. I, uh, yes, please do. So I was incredibly lucky as a child, uh, in that when I was probably between the ages of like five, probably around like five or six, I was given a TV and VCR in my room uh, because my parents did not want to hear the opening theme to Thomas the Tank Engine anymore. (laughs) They not even the remix. (laughs) No. Especially not the remix. Um, yeah, I I watched so much Thomas the Tank Engine as a wee child, um, and I we had so many tapes, and my mother could not take it anymore, so they put a, a tape player and a TV in my room so that they could shut the door and not have to hear it. <laughs> Thanks, mom and dad. Ch- <laughs> you're the you're the fault here. Are you an only child? I, I am. I am an only child. Yes. Why do I know so many only child? Uh, yeah, of course you got your own TV and VCR. You didn't have <laughs> three other siblings that would have murdered. It was sort of uh, my older brother. I remember my older brother once he became high school age. He saved up enough to get a, uh, I believe, it was a TV VCR combo, a little thirteen inch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, once I became old enough to work and earn money, I also followed suit. All the sound effects in this episode, like, just gave me so much nostalgia. Mm. I, I love, I I love VHS. I'm not a collector, but I do have friends who are. They'll talk about how like certain movies, uh, because of the rarity, are like oh, like 800 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a few years back there was a very big VHS boom, uh, but then some of those, if I'm not mistaken, some of those titles because of the popularity they gained. Which honestly was mainly, it's not like they were good. They were just rare. So people wanted them. Those got picked up and got brought to disc. And so then all the value of a lot of people's VHS has dropped. Yeah. Um, it's, there's something about a tape in your hand and like that shake. 
it's, yeah there's something versus any other like physical media just the container itself there's something about it and i'm sure this opinion is very skewed but again how many horror movies are there about you know vinyls right or cassette tapes yeah exactly um yeah there's just something to the weight and feel of a video cassette in your hands that sound that they make that kind of hollow plasticky chunky sound um the the, the feel of putting <laughs> it into a cassette player um where like the little loading mechanism grabs it and pulls it in all that it's yeah there's just something very tactile and and nice about it um i think like, i i want to say that my parents still have all of our disney clamshell vhs tapes at their place so we've still got a bunch of those i don't know if they have a vhs player anymore but they still got the tapes i'm sure of it well if i can i mean speaking of storing tapes mm-hmm. uh if i get a little tangential uh sure I guess not tangential. I this is a whole section that I've written out that I've written out. But okay, real quick before you get into that, I just want to say, Betamax wasn't discontinued until 2016. I did in my other research. I did see that. I'm like, dang. Yeah, they kept. They kept yeah, because you could still get you could still get blank VHS tapes. I believe still or I, no? Uh, no, I think they stopped in July of 2016. Funai of Japan ceased production. So yeah, it's they've only. Re- in the past like four years kind of disappeared off the market, which I would say give it like a year or two and you'll probably see some sort of like nostalgia market for it. You can't even claim the vinyl, you know, thing of like, yeah. oh, it's just a warmer sound. Like, no, it's crappy. It's a crappy Oh yeah, it's picture. bad. <laughs> it's Garbo and it doesn't last uh, as, as we'll get into. Um, I, I thought about that little tape flying across, you know, through the solar system. Uh-huh. Going from planet to planet, like it went to Pluto, I think at one point. Mm-hmm. It yep. was in Venus for sure, <laughs> like a convent on Europa. Yeah. Like, um, and I'm sorry to say this, but all physical media is going to fail. There, there's no perfect, unlimited storage system for media, uh, especially video media. Um, so I'm like, well, would that tape actually play? Would it last? Because I think the rough estimate of time from when it was recorded to when it uh, got there. So Faye went to a coma in 2014. If she's in her teens, that tape was probably recorded late 2000s. Yeah, I'd say. So we're at this point, we're talking about 60 something years. Would it would, would a tape last that long? You know? Mm-hmm. I, I, VHS tapes haven't even been around long enough to see if there's one from 60 years ago. Close, but close. Um, and so this is just an excuse to talk about physical media and also talk about uh, film archiving and how perilous and how we're going to lose all of our culture via physical media at some point, probably. So uh, to get a sense of how sort of dire the situation is. Um, the Film Foundation, which I believe is a nonprofit, uh, estimates that, quote, one half of all films made before 1950 and over 80 percent made before 1929 are lost forever. And honestly, switching from digital instead of shooting on actual film stock uh, has probably made everything worse. 
So traditional film, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, that's chemically processed. If it is stored in a cool, dry place, if it is barely disturbed, um, like there, like I think there are studios that basically own a bunch of non-functioning salt mines and they just slam a bunch of mm-hmm. their movies in there. Uh, you'll get about a century or so out of that. Um, but more recently, because we're moving to digital, the new archiving solution has been to save on magnetic tape uh, called LTO, or Linear Tape Open, is what it stands for. Um, now, uh, for sort of reference, as of from the article I read, uh, I think at that time it was saying storage is around 6 terabytes to 15 terabytes. Uh, for reference, the, the film that I edited... Uh, that was shot on 4K uh, to store uh, not just the film itself, but also all the video from it, all the, like, resources and everything. Uh, That's about 12 terabytes. Um, I actually had, like, I didn't order the hard drives for it, but I was running off, like, four different hard drives (laughs) for the movie. (laughs) Wow. It was insane. And I think one one did fail, actually, but that's why you have backups. Yeah. but this LTO, it's like, okay, you know, there's a lot of storage on it. Uh, it can only last 30 to 50 years. And uh, and there are a few other things that are causing problems because, you know, you have Moore's Law that every, you know, every couple of years, basically your processing and computing power, computing power doubles. So there are new versions of LTO coming out every other year that have a lot more storage, that become a little bit faster. And there are new readers for it. So not only are you putting it on LTO, but every couple of years, if you want your, you know, your tapes to be relevant and readable, you have to transfer it to the next version of LTO. Um, and I think right now, as read and write speed on LTO, max is out at about 750 megabytes per second to like a gig. Mm-hmm. So like depending on whatever your library is, you know, 16 terabytes for tape, you I, I think, what is a petabyte? Is a uh, thousand terabytes correct? Is that the next petabyte. one? Petabyte. Petabyte, P- thank you. P-E-T-T-A, I think. All right. Uh, so, like, a petabyte could take months to transfer over. It's, it is a mess. <laughs> but right now, this is sort of the best uh, we can do. I actually ran into this personally. In 2010, we had uh, there was a project that we shot that we actually backed up on LTO. And in 2018, no, I'm sorry, in 2019, we were trying to retrieve it, and we had the player for it. But the uh, because of the connections in the back of the LTO reader, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to hook it up to any PC we had at the time. And like getting the proper cables for it, making sure it worked. We we wouldn't have been able to get the thing we needed in time. Jeez. So it's so yeah, I I mean like so nine years and it was already like, cool, it's archived. We can't read it. <laughs> also, you know, briefly mentioned, like again, it's like, oh, we'll put it in the cloud. It's like, haha, you fools. Hard drives only last three to five years. Yeah. Uh hard drive disc, at least. And they're oh, they're so fragile. Oh my yes. god, they're so fragile. Um, the solid state is about uh, rough estimate is about ten years before failure. Yeah. So, so back up things, please. <laughs> yeah, I know. Depending on the actual RPMs of your, if you have a, a hard disk drive, 
the RPMs, you actually want lower RPMs if you want the hard drive to last longer because it's not spinning as fast, which isn't putting as much stress on the disk. So, yeah. And in my line of work, it's always like, what is the fastest hard drive I can get? I mean, it's solid state now, but like yes. for storage, it's always like, give me those 7200, give me those 7200 RPMs, baby. I got to read this fast. <laughs> um, optical media, I was surprised by this. It's a little bit better. So like CDs, DVDs, mm-hmm. um, again, if in optimal conditions. It could be anywhere from 20 to estimates to 200 years. The 20 is mainly for rewritable media, which has less, uh, it's it's less reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but optical media has a very low storage. I think UHD now, I think they top out at 100 gigabytes. So it's not, yeah, it lasts longer, mm-hmm. but there's not much space. Also, you got to make sure you can have something that can read it. Remember when we always used three point, you know, what three point five inch floppies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was that's only twenty years ago, man. Yeah, like I think mid two thousands they stopped putting those in. Okay, so here's a here's a little side thing. Uh, at work, whenever I have to go into like one of the comm rooms, which has like the servers and the network switches for the store, there's been a couple stores where I've gone in and like they just leave stuff on top of the servers. And I have found, <laughs> I have found three-inch floppies oh. in some of these stores. It is like bananas because there's nothing in there that can use a three-inch floppy. I don't know why it's in there or where it came from. How how much information are on floppies? I'm sure of it. I'm sure none of it's vital. Maybe it is, but like, how how are you gonna read that? Yeah. Um, I know I'm gilding the lily a lot, but I do just want to emphasize that like physical media will fail you. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it is a miracle they were able to watch this beta. But like what are what are the actual, you know, what's the lifespan of tapes? Um, so Sony, uh, as you said, the developers of Betamax, they actually did an internal study. And their ideal conditions for it are about 77 degrees. Uh, and, you know, 50% or less of relative humidity, um, and it should be very stable. <clears throat> and when it's stored in that, the tape should be stable and have no real change in electromagnetic performance. Um, and life expectancy can, like, swing very wildly because it's just, it's magnetic tape. It is, you're talking about a chemical process. So magnetism wears down over mm-hmm. time. The parts of the tape could disintegrate, like from the plastic base, uh, the back coating. There's lubricants in VHS tapes because mm-hmm. it's a you know it, it spins. Um, whole lot of things can mess with it. So Sony's guess was that under ideal conditions, you are looking. Do you want to take a guess? What the, what what Sony said the the lifespan of a tape was? Uh, I am going to say. Under ideal conditions, I'm going to say 120 years. Under ideal conditions, Sony predicts all modern tape formulations will last 15 years without significant degradation. Holy shit. Now, I have, I went to cons in the late 90s and early 2000s. I have bootlegs of things that are very near and dear to me. Um, I've watched them, I think, this year or either late last year, um, they still work. Now, is the picture quality good? No. (laughs) 
Uh, especially cool. like, and, and these are tapes like I have watched a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I think like there are a lot of tapes that like I just fell asleep to as a lad. Um, so, oh, yeah. you know, we're talking over 20 years and they're still going. So, so I say all this to say, what is the answer? You know, did, should the ba- should in reality, should this tape have gotten to Faye and been able to play? Um, cause you know, that thing went through some extreme temperatures Temperatures, tra- space radiation, like mm-hmm. oh, I think, God. yeah, just like it being in a ship going someplace probably would have actually ruined that tape. Yeah, I for- I completely forgot about radiation, so I am going to change my answer where it's like, no, that tape should not work. Yeah, at all. Uh, well, if I w- when I wasn't considering radiation, I was like, it probably would have played. It would have been way dirty. It would have like it would have been like you know trying to get a block channel on your cable box. Yeah. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ra- oh, radiate. you're right. Radiation would have ruined it. Yeah, unless all that packaging is some high-grade, like, <laughs> like, lead casings around that, that cassette. I don't think that thing would work. Yeah, all, yeah. All ships are made of lead in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um... But yeah, a, a long tirade just to say, hey, man, uh, digital digital has made things worse for archiving purposes because we have so much now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just going to get harder, probably, until we start storing on DNA. Yeah. There was like a holographic disc format. Ooh. Yeah, HVD. Holographic versatile disc. Six terabytes. Ultra high density optical disc. But I have no idea how long those things are supposed to actually last. Oh, this is what lost a Blu-ray. Or no. No, not HD DVD. HVD. HVD. Holographic versatile disc. Yeah. Um, Developed between 2004 and 2008 through several terabytes on an optical disc 10 centimeters or 12 centimeters in diameter. It says it's never been produced for the market, for the public. Yeah, no, I think this thing is actually, like, literally designed for, like, archival purposes. Because that's my thing. I'm just like, disc seems like the long-lasting solution. It's just, like, it can't store it. There's, it can't store anything. System uses a green laser with an output watt of one watt of high power. That is, that is pretty intense. Yeah. Oh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know wattage from voltage. I'm... Yeah, that's that's that's... So a green laser, a one watt green laser, is that the kind of laser that could probably like light something on fire? Oh, cool! <laughs> oh. It is. It is not a consumer device. You know, we're gonna lose everything. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, if we if we all live that long. <laughs> yeah, you know. So we'll say, uh, animation-wise, I do really like the opening of this episode, where it's the operatic version of Adu over the uh, the cuts of the fish getting away and Faye losing the horse race. Thought that was very good. I I did do a double take when I heard. I'm like, oh, that's a male vocal. Yes, and it's I, I guess never used anywhere else. It's not. It's unreleased as well. I believe. Yes. After the opening of the episode, uh, we get to hear Jet telling Ed about Urashima Taro, which 
if you listen to the episode our my funny valentine episode you'll know that we we talked about it there but this is the story of the japanese fisherman who rescued a turtle that then took him to uh ryugujo the dragon palace beneath the sea where they are uh where urshima is uh rewarded with all sorts of feasts and beautiful women and things like that and then when he leaves is given the jeweled box, the Tamatebako, which they tell him not to open. But when he does open it, because curiosity gets the better of him, it is revealed that he spent a hundred years in this undersea palace, and his old age was kept inside the box. This episode just basically, again, really lays it out on on the the, the table there. Uh, what Faye is sort of the the sort of what Faye's story is going for. She is a woman out of time. She spent however many years in stasis and then was brought out. And now she has to uh, figure out who she is. And now there is this cassette tape, this little jeweled box that has come to her uh, to show her her past and the the years that she was not there for. Um, It's actually kind of uh, I'm sure this is exactly what they were going for. Uh, the first delivery vehicle has a turtle on it. So it is the turtle that brings Urshima Fei, her, her Tame Tebako. Yeah, Jet in the episode, when they're going through the underground museum, which is literally underwater, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as the Ryuju Jo, the, the, the undersea palace. Ryuju Jo. Ryuju Jo, thank you. And then, well, they also do a sneaky thing. Speaking of delivery drones, uh, mm-hmm. I think the la- the second one and the last one has a rabbit on it. Yes, yes, it does. So, yeah, uh, tortoise and the hare. Of course, the rabbit one comes second. Mm-hmm. It's too busy of course. napping. Yep, too many, too busy napping with that Betamax plate. <laughs> we we picked up on it first in that last episode, and now they're like, "Yes, you are correct. This We've been is- planning this." When they went to the the old media shop to the to the analog otaku, one it kind of reminded me how much of like of a self hating nerd I am sometimes. <laughs> it's like uh, this guy, yeah. Um, but he, uh, fun fact, he's essentially watching Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. That's the twentieth century drama he's talking about. Yep, it's twins from Minnesota in a new city. That's the plot of nine hundred two one zero, and I think it's at the very end. It's Shannon Doherty. And uh, Jason Priestley, yes, who are who are credited in the end crawl, uh, who are the main characters in Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and also Jason Priestley, R.I.P. Right? Uh, no, no, that right. I thought he's who's in Riverdale. That was a Nine Hundred Two One Zero. I thought about this earlier, and I cannot remember his name. Hold on, Luke Perry. Luke, there we, yeah, yes, he is still Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was a little young for 90210. I was not interested. I remember my mother watching it, but that's really about it. Yeah, I think my dad and my brother were very much into it. But yeah, that so that dude, that shop owner, if it was now, he he would just have a YouTube channel mm-hmm. or a podcast. <laughs> what? Looking, yeah, looking around <laughs> nervously. Uh uh the line that Spike says when they get back from uh, the the media otaku's shop. My ship works better when I kick it. 
has stuck with me since I first watched this episode. I don't know why, but just something about the way that he says it and what he says has just kind of stuck in my brain for years. Along with bell peppers and beef, Mm -hmm. this line was, was very quoted amongst my friends. Okay. So, so yeah, it's, it's very good because it, it's like, well, that's Spike. Yes. Exactly. Uh, not, not thinking ahead, going with the flow, um, usually solves problem with his feet. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't run away and he doesn't, I guess in the first episode, he consults. But for the most part, it's very much, I don't know, I'll just walk towards it and mm-hmm. whatever happens, happens. Literally, that's what he says. Yes. Whatever happens, happens. But yeah, I think closing thoughts. I guess one, there's some very good ed animation in this. Uh, I -hmm. have to point out that she scratches her nose with her foot. Yes. And that's very fun. Um, But just so, yeah, super good. Please, if you're watching along, definitely, you know, give this multiple watches if you can. Um, Just so, so much revealed while still being subtle about it, you know? Yeah. Like like I said, I, I absolutely adore this episode is one of my favorites and it's it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of it's very emotionally affecting i think if you want to play a little game you can do the the anime what does this device actually supposed to be like brand name wise you can definitely do that a lot in this episode with the the sannies and and things like that instead of sony if you're a listener in your mid-20s something's gonna come out actually i don't know I don't know what your physical media is going to be. I don't know what format container you're going to be nostalgic for. I guess YouTube. Maybe YouTube will fall and something else will come. Uh, Probably. mm, Maybe. I don't don't know because... Right? So nostalgia. Yes. A lot of nostalgia, at least when it comes to like movies and music and things like that. A lot of it has to do with the flaws... Of the format. The things that make the format kind of suck are what makes you nostalgic for it. So, like, how kind of grainy and lo-fi VHS is. Having to, like, you know, put in a cassette. Like, the weird kind of warping and things like that. A lot of that makes up sort of the nostalgia for it. And I, it's really hard to say with stuff like YouTube or even, like dvds and blu-rays what the the flaws there are going to be that people are going to latch onto. i mean maybe like video artifacting might be like one of the big things but yeah i don't i don't know that's a a real interesting thought like what is what is it what is the flaw there that is going to end up being the defining characteristic that makes you nostalgic for it because like I think especially in YouTube, for the most part, loading times are non-existent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not going to be the ads, maybe? <laughs> I f- yeah, maybe like ads, like maybe the shift of video fidelity as the video loads. Because I know like on my phone or something like that, a lot of times it tends to load in at a lower resolution. And then as it gets a few seconds in, it'll jump up to a higher resolution. So maybe that sort of fuzz from low definition to high definition or yeah i don't i don't know 
That's it, I'd, I'd love to hear what people have to say about it. Uh, it might be user interface because I feel like that's already we're, yeah. we're seeing the beginnings of it. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I, I think I found a, f- a screenshot of like some old YouTube and it was mind blowing how different it used to look. I remember the first time I saw it, someone showed me YouTube. It's like. I guess it had to have been 05, 06, somewhere around there. Um, it's like, hey, this is YouTube. People just post videos. I'm like, oh, oh, shit. Like, I remember having that thought of like, this changes everything. Mm-hmm. And it and it did and still does. Um, speak, if, if I could just quickly mention as far as nostalgia for flaws in mm-hmm. like, video quality um so ryan johnson's dp steve yedlin he's just he's a big old nerd uh he has like several hour-long videos like about can you replicate the features of film onto digital you know are we you know why are we clinging to film as a chemical process for capturing images what are the actual advantages and disadvantages you know is there a difference that can't be replicated um, he also talked about resolution, mm-hmm. uh, and like, I think his estimation was that, or in his research and like side by side comparisons, especially what with the, what the human eye can actually take in, we really can't tell the difference <laughs> between 1080 and 4k, you know, mm-hmm. which again, 4k is 4k is just double resolution. Um, and like how resolution doesn't really matter. And like the reason you're seeing, and I, I, and the reason you're seeing, you know, 8K t- TVs being like touted out now, it's like that is that's marketing, baby. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. TV like TV manufacturers need you to buy a new TV, so they have to say, oh, it's 8K, that thing that no one shoots in and no one broadcasts in. So I say all that to say, yeah, I I think we're past the point of visual fidelity being a nostalgic element of media. Yeah. Or it could be proven wrong. I don't know. No, I mean, it's it's real hard to say. And I think I have to wait a few more years to, and, and talk to talk to some of the young people. But, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what what things in their media consumption they find nostalgic. Remember like buttons, guys? <laughs> like I guess buttons. Vine. I don't know. Who's nostalgic for Vine? <laughs> you know, Vine, that's not, you're not wrong. And then eventually it's going to be like TikTok. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about other media. Okay. So for movie recommendations, I I have an honorable mention. And then I have, you know, the the main event. Um, I'm... I don't know if I'm recommending this movie, but I do just want to bring it to everyone's attention because it had the plot is similar to certain plot elements in this episode. Uh, and this movie is My Life from 1993. It stars Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman. Uh, it was written and directed by Bruce Joel Rubin, uh, and they are best known as the writer of Ghost and Jacob's Ladder and Deep Impact, and this is their only directing credit. And I can tell by your silence that you have never seen this, and that's I fine. have. I don't think I have ever even heard of this. All right. Um, 
go yeah go watch the tra- if nothing else go watch the trailer because like you get some very juicy michael keaton bits uh mm. especially compared to like some of his later work in the past few years so the plot centers around michael keaton like he's successful uh he's about to have his first child uh, his first son but then he gets diagnosed with a terminal illness and so he starts recording himself and making videotapes uh for his unborn son um and the, and the movie's really just about like you know dealing with this horrible thing that has happened coming to accept death learning to enjoy you know the moments of life uh, but the subplot is him like making these weird videos like how to shave uh, for his unborn son. Uh, I just, if you were watching TV on a Saturday afternoon in the 90s, it probably came up on like a WGN or Mm. uh, something like that. Uh, You know, and probably a reason that Bruce Joel Rubin did not direct anything else. (laughs) So like, I don't watch the trailer. Uh, I don't know if it's good or bad. Like, I don't know. Your mom will probably like it. Uh, <laughs> it's you. You know, y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like at your heartstrings, kind of drama pieces. It's it's insane to me that this dude's first movie is like I don't know Michael Keaton, Nicole Kidman. Give me those two. They're available, <laughs> right? It opened at number three behind The Three Musketeers and Carlito's Way. Wow. Yeah. This is. Yeah. This is. <laughs> for extra nostalgia find a copy that's like on uh blank v that, that was put on a v that was recorded on like an afternoon you get all the commercials and bumpers oh god but look you y'all know what we if we're talking videotapes you know what movie we gotta talk about we gotta talk about ringu baby <laughs> uh it's the only movie involving videotapes we have to it's required by law yeah uh, yeah So it it is a very famous uh, Japanese film and also franchise uh, that was made in, well, had a bunch of different versions, but the version we're going to talk about is the original Japanese version made in 1998, is directed by Hideo Nakata, uh, who is best known for this, uh, Ringu 2, and then the original Dark Water. Nakata also uh, directed the U.S. version of the Ring 2 in 2005 making his English language debut with a sequel to a remake of his own film, Say That Five Times Fast. Holy shit. That's, yeah. is, that's that, is that a power play? I don't... That's, I don't that's, know too much of the story behind it, but like, wow, right? Yeah, that's... that's Yeah, that's just kind of like a brain twister there. Um... The movie is based on the 1991 novel by Koji Suzuki uh, and with a screenplay by Hiroshi Takahashi. Uh, Koji Suzuki, uh, he, had, he has several uh, novels in, the, I guess, the Ring franchise. Um, the movie stars Nanako Matsushima. Uh, she also returned for the sequel. And it also stars Hiroyuki Sanada, um, who uh, is starting to get some success here in the West. Uh, he was in The Last Samurai. Uh, the Wolverine in 47 Ronin. And as of this recording, he is set to play Scorpion in the Mortal Kombat reboot, which is a little funny that he's in all these action movies because of the ring. He's like a professor. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, okay. Uh, he is in Twilight Samurai, which is a very good movie. Yeah. Sorry. 
Oh, that's fun. No, I'm just like, Twilight Samurai. We're going to get a hold of this guy. All right. Uh, so, guys, you know the plot of Ringu. There's a cursed videotape. If you watch it in seven days, you die. The original movie and the remake started the 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 J-horror craze on both ends uh, uh, of the planet, actually. And here, both in the East and the West, uh, you know, we got here in the West, we got a bunch of remakes in the early mm-hmm. 2000s um, of Japanese horror films. Horror was not a very big genre uh, production wise and like uh, business wise in Japan until Ringu came out. And, you know, we got more with like The Grudge, uh, Dark Water, uh, Pulse. I forget the Japanese name, but he, oh. The Ring caused all this. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets a little squirrely because there's several different versions of Ringu kind of sorta. All right. So, so the original Ringu and its sequel came out at the same time. Let me explain. Um, they, the Ringu had been a TV movie before this theatrical version. And the novel was a pretty big success uh, along with the other, the sequel to the novel, which I believe is called Razin, Raisin. Uh, or translated as Spiral. So the producer's like, oh, we'll just put out the first movie and the second movie together. People already know what this is. They'll go and watch it. So Ringu and Spiral came out at the same time. They had different directors. I think different, uh, everything was almost different. I think they might've shared one cast member, but it was essentially like two different movies. And Ringu took off and made so much money and left Spiral behind in the dust. That, like, you know what? Let's just redo that sequel. <laughs> Ringu 2. We're going to forget that Spiral was made. So it's this is all insane to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had so yeah. many versions out, especially at the same time. Um, but like speaking of versions, and if we include Hollywood remakes, there are 13 films in the Ring franchise. And the latest one was last year in 2019 with Sadako. So, you know, extremely popular. Like that's that's like you know, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees sort of level of Mm -hmm. uh, popularity. And I just like this little fact. I thought it was interesting production-wise. So Sadako was played by Rie Ino, uh, who was a kabuki theater actress. Hmm. And to get the effect of when, you know, she's walking away from the well or when whenever she's moving, what they did is they filmed her doing the action backwards so when they in post reversed it, it looked like she was moving forwards, but it was a little unnerving and creepy because it's not quite right. The same way how like in Twin Peaks. Uh, I, was, I was just thinking that. Yeah, to get that weird thing. They, they, they like had to phonetically say their lines backwards. And so when they reversed it, it kind of sounded correct. Not really. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is iconic. Uh, if you have not seen the original, I highly recommend it. It's a little, it's a lot more of a slower burn mm-hmm. than the remake. The first time I actually watched it, it was um, in Pittsburgh. There's this wonderful store called Ides, E-I-D-E apostrophe S. It's like the basement is comics. The first floor is like new stuff, general media. And the third floor is just movies and books. And so I think I found a copy. It was probably like a bootleg that they were trying to resell. It was like mm. three bucks. So the first time I saw it, it was like horrible resolution, which might have added to it. But it's 
It's very, I mean, it, dude, it, it's iconic. Sadako coming from the TV, just that whole. Yeah. It's a, it's a meet, you know, it's, it's mimetic. It, it's, it's iconic. Um, if you want to watch it now, uh, I think all th- the first three Ringu movies are available on Shudder, the horror specific streaming service. Uh, but you can also watch it ad free on something called Asian Crush. Huh. So you could, yeah, you could check. If you haven't seen Ringo, you could check it out right now on the free. But uh, yeah, tapes, man. They're, they're haunted. Yeah, they're, they're haunted with nostalgia <laughs> with, and, and ghosts. Yeah. If the ghosts don't get you, regret will. I'm just thinking about how the Ring franchise got so buck wild that there is a, a straight up Freddy versus Jason style <laughs> versus movie in the franchise. I thought that would have been the last one made. You would but think. Because uh, I'm like, because that's, that's how it happens usually. <laughs> and then they restart. What's, uh, what is it? Sadako, it's... Sadako versus Kayako, which uh, Kayako is the ghost from The Grudge. Also, there is footage of, I believe, Sadako throwing out the first pitch. Uh, of of a Japanese baseball game, which is also very good. Yes, they did a lot of promotion for that movie. And it is, I want to say they even did like some uh, YouTube videos or something like that, where they're just like going shopping and and things like that. It's, it's, yeah, the whole like press circuit for that movie was, was really out there. If nothing else, Japan realizes that like capitalism should have no shame. Yeah. Let's, Let's get rid of the pretense of art <laughs> and, and just say, no, this, these are, this is a franchise. We're going to, they're going to, they're like idols. Essentially. They got to make all of their appearances. Yeah. Ugh. So yeah. So yeah. Good and bad. Yay. Yay. So that has been our episode for this week. Again, session 18, speak like a child. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us at thinking too hard pod at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. If you have any opinions or, you know, uh, want to let us know if we do something better or something like that, you can let us know there. You can also tweet at us at thinking anime on Twitter. And then it would also ask if you have been enjoying the show to please go rate and review us on whatever podcast service that you are using. If it is something that you can do on that podcast service, it helps us go up in the ratings so that more people can find us and more people can listen to it. And, you know, if you know somebody that's like, man, I've got nothing to do. I'm stuck inside all day for reasons. Uh, you should let them know that, hey, check out this podcast and watch this anime. Uh, I, I I thought you were going to say forever. <laughs> for well, reasons also works. Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but give it time. Oh, uh, if you would like to follow me on the internet, you can find me, Noah, at Common Otaku. That's K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U on Twitter. Um, you can also check me out on a couple of other podcasts like the Role Playing Exchange, the Technical Difficulties Gaming Podcast. I occasionally appear on RPPR, the Role Playing Public Radio and I'm on the Best Power Brigade Twitch stream every Saturday for the foreseeable future. So uh, go check those out. It's a lot of tabletop gaming. Uh, so, yeah. 
Aaron. Uh, you can find me bumming around the internet on Twitter at Aaron J. Shelton. I have another podcast that deals with anime, but in the jokey sense, uh, Kame House Party, uh, K-A-M-E, uh, where we are going through the entirety of Dragon Ball, uh, and we're making jokes about it, myself and my co-host Vince. Uh, I think when you listen to this, we've been we've hit 200 episodes at that point. Um, so, pl- so again, if for some reason, you're stuck inside forever. Uh, you know, plenty to do uh, on that end. Uh, I also stream every Thursday around 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you just go to twitch.tv slash Kame House Party. And on Saturday, November 7th, at 10 a.m. Eastern, again on twitch.tv slash comedy house party. Uh, I am doing a 12 hour charity stream uh, in association with Extra Life. Uh, we're trying to raise money for Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. Uh, come watch or play like a bunch of games. We're going to have some guests, maybe someone else who's on the very podcast you're listening to right now uh, will mm-hmm. make an appearance. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. If they're good. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're just, you know, trying to raise money for a very good cause. Uh, you know, come check us out. Cheer us on. Even if you can't donate right now, uh, we really appreciate it. Again, that is on November 7th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Just go to twitch.tv slash House Party. Yeah, that's it. Thank you very much again for listening. Uh, join us in two weeks for Session 19, Wild Horses. Uh, and until then, I've been your host, Noah Carden. And I've been your other host, Aaron J. Shelton. And we've been thinking too hard. <laughs> <laughs>